Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. The focus this morning will be on verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Paul's main purpose for writing this urgent letter is to stop the slide away from Christianity that was occurring in the Galatian church very shortly after it had received the gospel for the first time. Paul's goal was to confront a distortion of the gospel that was really no gospel at all and to reemphasize the one true message of saving grace. Hear now God's holy word, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news about the great salvation purchased by Jesus Christ, where he has reconciled sinful people, including me and including my brothers and sisters here to you, the holy God, now our heavenly father. This gospel message is under attack in every age, and we pray for you to grant us the grace of faithfulness to so love your gospel that we are, in effect, guardians of it. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the great privileges we have as pastors here is to be involved intimately with our school on a regular basis, many of your children. And we are able to lead chapel every month or every week, but we switch months. So I will lead chapel once a week for one month, and then Pastor Brian will lead chapel the next month, and then Pastor Nathan the following month, and we rotate. So we come to know the children, at least at that level, and probably the children we get to know the most are those who are in the afternoon kindergarten class, because that class is not here for the morning chapel. We go into that class special and tell the Bible story or the sermon that we gave in the service earlier. We give that to those children and we talk through it and they can ask questions. And there's usually 12 or 15 kids on the, on the floor with us in the rocking chair sharing that story with them. Wonderful time. Well, about December, I would get to class a bit early and I noticed they had Legos on the table. So I started making stuff with the Legos. And it came to be where the kids expected Pastor Tony to have some new creation built by the time they got back from art class right before they were going to be in chapel, and they would look forward, race in to see what I made. And i got to admit, it was pretty good stuff that I was making. I had spaceships that had multiple weapons on it and all sorts of people that could hang on different spots. And I had to get there 20 minutes early eventually to get this thing done and created well. And so I would create these. For about a month, I was doing this. And at the end of the last class, before I knew that Pastor Nathan would take over the next month, I said... Pastor Tony's the best Lego maker, don't you think? The kids said, yes, you are. You definitely are. Very loyal. In fact, heartfelt. I can tell they, they can tell that no one would be able to come and do something better. I think two weeks after Pastor Nathan started and copied me and started doing the same thing, within two weeks he told me they were wavering. That they were starting to say that 
he was a better Lego maker than me. It only got worse when Pastor Brian started the next month, and likewise, they had all deserted and abandoned me by that time. Except for one. There was one little Italian-looking boy in that class, which you can count on. And he, and his teachers here can confirm, he stood fast. So I came in the next class that it was my turn, disappointed with a box of Skittles. And I said, now, children, you have a chance to recant. And at first they didn't want to. Some didn't admit that they had deserted me. So I said, how about if I give you a bag of Skittles? Then will you admit that Pastor Tony is the best Lego maker? And immediately the head started, no, we'll do that, we'll do that. So I gave them all a love gift. <laughs> do you know, not even two weeks later, I'm still doing chapel. I stopped making some of my creations, thinking, okay, I've got them, I've got them secured. They've got their candy. Now they'll remember before the school year's over, I made the best Lego creations. Do you know the last class when I asked them who makes the best Lego creations? Very slow to respond. Some had already started to abandon me and didn't even have another example yet. Okay, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, I am shocked with how fast you have abandoned the one who called you. It's funny and cute we're talking about a neat little thing with kindergarten students. It's not so cute when the church has been delivered the gospel by the blood of Jesus and we quickly abandon that message. Yet we are prone to it. This is why Paul writes in the fashion he writes here, which is totally unique for Paul. In the 12 other epistles he writes, he starts every one of those letters with all sorts of commendations, some praises, some prayer for the people. Some of the most sin-struck churches he writes to, he writes with a certain level of softness to begin the letter. Yet in this book, he goes right to saying, I'm shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. That's how urgent this letter is. Unique among his epistles. All of them write to correct errors. But this, because the error is damnable, he goes right to the message. No prayer for them. No commendation for them. No thanksgiving for their conduct or for their faithfulness. Instead, we have Paul receiving a heartbreaking report about the Galatian church and his indignant grabbing of the quill, so to speak, and writing this letter to them. One commentator says that this is Paul's abrupt, passionate outburst when he hears the distortion of the very message that saves us. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ or turning to a different gospel. This is an indignant cry of astonishment. I'm shocked, he says, literally. I marvel at how quickly you're deserting. It's not just the error, it's the speed of the error that shocks him. How quickly they have deserted. So soon. You know, we are mistaken when we think that the key threat to the church is from without. We really are. We worry far too much about what they think about us out there, so to speak. That is not where the real threat lies. The greatest threat to the growth and health of Christ's church doesn't come from out there. It doesn't come from unbelievers, the irreligious, or even the anti-Christians of the world. The greatest threat to the church is a counterfeit gospel, which is no gospel at all. That can come from within. This is what prompts Pastor Philip Reichen to say, the church's greatest danger is not the anti-gospel outside the church, it is the counterfeit gospel inside the church. But what is so 
encouraging about this passage, as urgent as Paul's tone is, as short as he is with them, as abrupt as he speaks to them. Look at verse 6, closely at the tense of their situation. I am astonished that you are present so quickly deserting him. This is a present ongoing action. They're in the midst of this shift of loyalty. There's still hope. He doesn't say you have deserted or you have apostatized, you have left. He's saying, I'm astonished that you're in this process of moving away from the true gospel. So he speaks with sharpness, but he doesn't speak with hopelessness. He speaks with the intention to see change happen by the Holy Spirit's ministries. He speaks the truth. This is a military term, desertion. Deserters. They're religious turncoats. Revolting against, transferring their allegiance from the gospel of grace, really to man and his ability to perform. Throughout this letter, Paul will address error and then present truth. As we look at these verses, let's ask three important questions. First, what is the gospel? He uses the term here twice in these these verses. And throughout his books, he uses it multiple other times. What is the gospel? What does he mean by the gospel? We need to answer that question. Secondly, how is the gospel distorted, prompting Paul to write this letter? And more important to our specific context, how is the gospel distorted today? Finally, how did Paul confront this distortion that he faced? And for us, how should we face the distortions, confront the distortions of the gospel, address them today? First, what is the gospel? Look at verse 6 and 7. You'll see him mention this term, twice, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Jesus, you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He was shocked by this distortion. We see this in his tone. Well, what is the authentic gospel message? To recognize the distortion or a counterfeit, we have to know what is authentic. Well, first, Paul gives a brief gospel content overview in verse 4, just preceding the passage we are studying. Look back at Galatians 1, verse 3 and verse 4. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Who gave himself, reference to Christ, for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. The gospel is Christ giving himself for our sins to deliver us according to the will of God. That's the gospel. That Christ, the righteous one, would die for us so that we might have a relationship with our Father. Yes, there are complexities as we study and understand that profound statement that he dies for our sins. But the simple message of the gospel, to be saved, for eternal salvation, is to know that Christ has died for my sins paid for my sins. Now I can have relationship access to God the Father. Without this, I cannot have access. My sins are still upon me and I'm unforgiven. But in Christ, he takes my sins. They're nailed to the cross with him. I receive his righteousness. Now I have relationship with God. That's the gospel message. That's what Paul delivers. This is what the New Testament agrees upon. In fact, The term gospel is used 100 different times in the New Testament. The gospel is called several things. 
Thessalonians, Paul calls it the gospel of God. It means good news of God. In Romans, several different designations are given to the gospel. The gospel of Christ. The gospel of God's Son. My gospel, Paul says in Romans. Mark refers to it as the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom, Matthew says. In the book of Acts, written by Luke, the gospel of the grace of God. Paul to the Ephesians, the gospel of peace. Revelation 14.6, the everlasting gospel. In every case, this is referring to Christ giving himself as a sin offering to pay for our sins. So now we are stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ and are accepted by God the Father. The gospel is about what God has done for us. And we are to believe it. That's the gospel. You know, this is not unique, obviously, to Galatians. Paul writes 13 letters in the New Testament. The other gospel writers as well agree. Listen to just a few succinct verses from different books of Paul to see how it's still centered on the same thing. Listen to what he says to the Romans in chapter 5, starting at verse 8. Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since there, therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Our sin paid for, the blood of Christ sacrificed for us and dying for us, the gospel. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The message of the gospel is reconciliation with God by the death of Christ. That's the gospel. It says to Titus, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Please notice the order. It's not that he makes his own possession those who are zealous for good works. He makes us his possession by the death of his son that makes us zealous for good works. The place of our works is in response or as evidence to salvation through the gospel, the forgiveness of our sins because of Christ's death. An important order to understand. Finally, just another mention of a great, succinct picture of the gospel by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage about the truth of the resurrection and its application personally. But he begins 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So believe it, he's saying. You've got to believe this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ, our sacrifice, has been slain for us. The gospel, therefore, is an objective reality rooted in history. It's not just some sentiment or some example out there or some mythological story. It's an actual event that happened some 2,000 years ago where he paid for our sins. Because of that objective reality, we have assurance. It's not dreamed up in our head. It's not a figment of our imagination. It was done in real time and in real space. 
That's the gospel, the death of Christ for us. Much more can be said about the death of Christ for us. There are corollary supporting doctrines that we have to understand. When I say believe in Jesus for the salvation of your soul, you have to know who Jesus is, what he did. Clearly, that he rose again. If he didn't rise again, then his death wasn't acceptable. So it's not that there aren't, more, there aren't other important doctrines, but this is crucial, this is central, this is key. And it is something a child can understand. I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven for my sins and the only one who could do it is Christ. It's the only one who could take them away. It's the gospel. Central. Key. You know, many different parts of your body can be removed and you could still get along. Maybe not as well, but you can get along with them. You can have certain organs removed and still live. A remarkable amount of organs can be removed and you can still live. You can have limbs amputated and still live. You won't get along as well as you used to, but you can live. But if your heart gets ripped out, you cannot live. And if you rip the death of Christ to the payment of our sins for the forgiveness of our sins out of Christianity, it is no longer Christianity. The heart's been ripped out. It's nothing. It's a waste of time is what it is. That's the heart of it. That's the center of it. Christianity is, in fact, defined by the gospel. No gospel, no Christianity. No matter what the lingo, the trappings of a given church, it's not Christian without the gospel. Christ's cross sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. How is the gospel distorted in Paul's writing, the time of his writing? How is it distorted today? Well, first, we know a little bit about the Galatian error because of what Galatians reveals in chapter 2. We also know, though, that Acts 15, Acts chapter 15, which is a historical record of the work of the apostles and their mission trips. There's a time when the apostles and the elders of the church get together to discuss an error that had crept into many of the newly planted churches. Listen to what is said in Acts 15, 1, as Paul and Barnabas and others give reports to some of this distorted teaching. Acts 15, 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, I can imagine, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they go to Jerusalem and discuss it, and the, the, the group agrees that the gospel is not Christ plus something else. In fact, commissions to go forth from there to clarify and correct this error, and most people think this is the occasion that brought about the writing of Galatians. Paul administering the ruling of that council to these churches. This is why in Galatians 2, 4, and 5 it says, Yet because of false brothers, this is back to Galatians now, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Paul says. So this is what has occurred. In the Galatian church, there were those who had been longtime Jews. And, and please understand what it must have been like for some of them. These were long-standing religious Jews who knew the Torah, knew the Old Testament, had practiced the sacrificial system, followed the law as best they can, were clearly misunderstanding in their tradition what actually saved them. There are many who are like this. And so now these Gentiles, who don't have any of that background, haven't paid any of that price to be called Jewish, now they're coming to Christ and they're, they're seemingly free. And like the older brother in the prodigal son story, the older brother's a little mad. Why is this so that they can come? So these Judaizers come in and they simply say, 
Christ, yes, He's a great, He's a great Savior. But to improve upon this, we need to bring together all the thousands of years of tradition and you need to be circumcised. You need to follow this law. This is what you have to do and Christ. Paul says, that's not the gospel anymore. Because in effect, your trust now is in what? Something you do. That's an outright addition. Causing him to say, look at verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Let's ask the question for a moment, how is the gospel distorted today? Uh, there are some who trouble the church by distorting the gospel. We see that clearly. That happens age to age. It's always The church has always been assailed by such uh, opposition. How is it done specifically? Well, certainly there's the outright addition to the gospel like the Judaizers did. And there are certainly Christian uh, professing Christian churches today that will say, Christ plus baptism. And not, not as a necessary ordinance like we believe it to be, but necessary for salvation. Christ plus baptism. Christ plus following these sacraments. This checklist. Christ plus this. Christ plus that. That's outright. And that is somewhat discernible if you've been in a church that preaches the gospel very long. You can see that, right? Well, I would submit to you that there's also a danger of the distortion of the gospel that can happen in the midst of people who would hold fast to what we say is the gospel. And what can happen is the gospel should be the center of who we are, but it can sometimes get pushed over by causes that are important, things the church should be involved with or speak to, but they become the main thing instead of the gospel. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I love Presbyterianism. I did not grow up in this tradition. I chose this tradition because I believed it to be so sound, so firm in upholding these things. But I'll be totally honest when you say that I never pray that we would be faithful Presbyterians. I never pray that we'd be faithfully reformed. I never pray that we would be faithful evangelicals. My prayer, honestly, in my heart for you, for us, is that we would be faithful, gospel-centered people. That's what our prayer should be. It's the gospel that should be centered. And it's certainly okay and appropriate to discuss all that goes around that message. That does give us distinctions among brothers and sisters in Christ. But we must recognize the centrality of the gospel is what makes us one. It is what is worth dying for. That's what we should be, is a gospel-centered place. And we have to be careful in the midst of that, that other things don't knock the gospel out of center. You know, the, the kind of message that comes forth from a church, you know, the be good people sermons. You know, we should be the best people in society so everybody sees that we're, you know, we should always rise to the highest ethical level. And that message, which is obviously not a bad message in itself, pushes over away the gospel message first. You know, the positive thinking and teaching sermons. Some of the most popular preachers today spend more time helping you to feel good about yourself than they ever open up the bad news of the gospel, which is that we're sinners and need salvation. I can't feel good about myself, so I know how God feels about me in Christ. Material prosperity has long been substituted for the gospel in many of our churches. Even good things like home life or the family has somehow become the idol of the church and the center of the church. That's what we glorify. Family, home life, whatever that means. The gospel is what our families need. Causes. You know, we become more associated with causes, things we're against, 
than what we are. The church should be known as the gospel-centered entity of the culture. People don't have to agree with what our message is, but they ought to know well what it is. It's the gospel. There are many great causes. Church should be involved with them. But they should not move the gospel out of center. Pro-causes, anti-causes. These are not to be our chief identifying feature. But there's also this kind of brand of cost-free Christianity that is, has come about, too, where come and we'll make everything as, as comfortable as possible and remove any trapping that would somehow confront you with anything that might possibly hurt your feelings. How do you preach the gospel to that? Because the gospel is offensive first. What, I'm a sinner? I don't want to come and hear that guy tell me I'm a sinner. That's the last thing I want to do to feel comfortable. So, it moves the gospel from a once faithful church that maybe the individuals really do believe the gospel, but they have shifted the message to where you can't even identify it anymore in the church. There's this new brand of this hip-hop culture, anti-tradition, Christianity uh, that's become central as well. The sappy personal relationship kind of church, too, where everything's emphasized on being authentic, being real, being transparent with each other along our way, on our journey together, and our path, and all this. Listen, the reason why we don't get along is because we're sinners who love ourselves more than each other. And until that issue is addressed, and only God's gospel addresses that, we can't have real authentic relationships. Those come from the gospel. The causes are addressed through a church centered upon the gospel. All these things have their place to be addressed. The church can speak to them because the Bible speaks to them. But our center is what keeps us focused on them in the right way. And it helps us to look at people in the world with compassionate eyes because we too were sinners who were blind at one time. And we stop looking at everyone like they are so, that they personally are condemnable because they don't think like I do. And we start recognizing the only reason I think the way I do is because God transformed my mind. And God has to do that for them too. And my level of compassion is different towards people. We actually love people in, without compromising the truth is the gospel of center because the gospel is always precious to us. Please notice that in every week, our order of worship has the gospel laid throughout it, whether it be the songs we sing, the confessions and the assurance we hear, or the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every week. It's a proclamation of the death of Christ paying for our sins. That no one should ever walk out of here thinking, we are higher and mightier than anybody else because of us. In fact, you should walk out of here so in love with what Jesus has done for you that it changes the way you act and live and think. That's what the gospel at the center does. We're reminded of our great sin, but we're always reminded of our greater Savior. Getting off center is one of the chief ways in which we see a distortion of the gospel today, even among genuine believers. But there's also another distortion that happens. I think of it as an oversimplifying of the teaching of the gospel. You know, in one sense, there's a beautiful simplicity to the gospel message as we have spoken of it. But in other sense, it's a complex network of understanding that you develop as you mature in the faith and understand what it means, who Jesus is, what he has done, why he had to do it, and how the Bible pieces that together for us. But sometimes the gospel is simply reduced to trust Jesus or accept Jesus into your heart, a phrase that never appears in the scripture. I know what it means. I'm not saying that God doesn't use it to lead people to, to embrace the gospel. But if you think about the term, what does that mean to accept Jesus into my heart? Well, you have to know who is Jesus. You have to know what the condition of one's heart is. You have to know what that means. What did he do for me? So we oversimplify it 
we have people pray these prayers and then they go on their merry way and we check off on our statistic list that we this many people profess that they accepted Jesus into their hearts. And an oversimplification of the gospel is giving a lot of people false assurance in the church a very superficial feel. Essentially, distorting the gospel. Because the deep profundity of what God has done is transformational when it's actually really applied. How should these distortions of the gospel be addressed? Let's look together at the text in verse 8 and verse 9 once again. It says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's a powerful statement. And as if it weren't enough, verse 9. And as we've said before, I mean literally, half a second before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. There are three observations I'll make about how we should address such distortions that come from these two verses. And and throughout Paul's dealing, first we see that our address has to be with clarity. In other words, when we address a distortion we must be able to point out clearly what the error of that distortion is. We have to be very careful to be clear about that. We have to be able to point out when a person or a teaching or a movement is distorting that central message of the gospel. Paul's not afraid to do this. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He's saying we, if we the apostles or an angel for that matter, I mean, two messengers you should be able to trust, if we give a different message from the message you know to be the gospel as it's been given to you, know that that messenger is accursed. Don't listen to their message. It's about the message, not the messenger. So with clarity, be able to recognize. But also, there's correction. That's what we have throughout Galatians. So it's with clarity that we are pointing out or clearly discerning the error of the distortion. But with correction we do so. The view to restore. Uh, In verse 6 it says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. In other words, in the present tense, there's a chance, there's an opportunity to see repentance. You have not gone all the way, Galatians. So now I write to you in the sharp tone. So we correct with the hope of restoration. That there would be repentance or there would be a coming back to the message of the gospel. It's with optimism that God will bring back those who are departing from this as the true gospel is applied, once again, it's confronting the error. So with correction, if any other message is preached, no matter who does the preaching, that person, his or her message, must be rejected. Obviously, I'm how many years into a ministry, a preaching ministry, 12 years, right? And I hope, I pray that I would be faithful to you, to, to God first, and to you, to give you the word of God. But I also hope that there's been enough training that I've done or we've done to help you understand that this is not about me and what I say. It's about the message. And if I get off of that message, there's no way I should be allowed to stay in this position. The message is far more important than the messenger. So with correction, we have to apply it when distortions arise. And the last thing that this clearly says, which is difficult to say today because it's misunderstood, with clarity, with correction, but also with condemnation against this error. Now, I do not mean to say that we condemn everyone who disagrees with us. There will be intramural debates until Jesus comes back. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about the gospel. Talking right there, that's where we have to speak. 
The other issue is we should speak to each other in love and pursue those things and discuss those things, study those things. But where we have to speak a word, if you will, of condemnation has to be when something is added to Jesus for salvation. That's when we have to speak. Paul speaks very clearly twice. Look at verse 8, let him be accursed. And then verse 9, let him be accursed. And please see there's an escalation there. In verse 8 it says, if we or an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary, he should be accursed. Verse 9 says, if anyone for that matter preaches to you a gospel that is contrary to the one you received, he should be accursed. It doesn't matter who the messenger is. If they preach something other than the true gospel, understand what his or her status is before God, and following them in their teaching will lead you to the same place. Leon Morris says it well. I know we live in a day that doesn't like to confront. We want everyone just to have their own view and just let's smile together. You know, they, they call me every month for this ecumenical prayer service. That just makes me want to gag. You're going to pray to who? And I'm going to pray to this? And you're going to pray to... No way! I'm not going to lie to you all and think I think this is real. They keep calling me, though. Keep getting a letter every month. We have to speak to this because that, as nice as it is, is leading people to hell. So that's the, the fact of the matter. If it's not, and it doesn't matter, why are we here? Leon Morris says this very succinctly. Denunciation of error is an index of devotion to the truth. He who cannot curse cannot bless either. Only the person who has a firm grip of the truth can discern what is erroneous. So what is the gospel, my dear brothers and sisters? That's the question every one of us must know the answer to. And I've met many Christians who've been in the church a long time who cannot succinctly tell you what the gospel is. It's a question every generation of Christ's church will have to answer and faithfully defend by God's grace. There was a pastor who was persecuted in modern times, he's alive today, for his preaching of the gospel and clarity. He wrote something wonderful I want to share with you in closing when he contemplated actually for a moment compromising or softening his message to some degree. This is what he said, and this is what he asked himself, and then you'll see what he answered. He said, what can they really do to me? They can criticize. What I teach, though, is false. Then they are the least of my problems. But if what I teach is correct, then God himself will vindicate it in the hearts of men and in whom he has chosen to reveal the truth, working above and beyond my effort to promote and defend it. Thus, I can perform the ministry on my own terms that are dictated to me by God and not have them dictated to me by the adversaries or by the latest and strongest pressure. Then he asks, what can they really do? They can employ sophistical arguments, but they cannot kill God's word. They can wield ecclesiastical powers, but they cannot kill God's work. They could kill me. But if I have learned to take up the cross daily, then in my mind, it has already happened. I have already died, and fear of the sting of death has been taken away. Since this ministry has been commissioned by Christ, there is nothing that anyone can do to damage it, whether Christian or non-Christian. I rest in his calling and in his providence, this brother writes. And since this ministry is indeed of God, then those who seek to destroy it are not fighting against me, but against God. Yet they are mere tools in the hands of God, who works all things for his glory and for my good, so that I may accomplish all that he has commanded. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of your Son. Give us faithfulness to guard that gospel, for it is everything. 
We joyfully acknowledge Christ's death to avail for our sins. His blood was washed away. Uh, washed away the guilt of our sins. It has cleansed us of all unrighteousness. His perfect obedience has been reckoned as our own. And we know this is the only way to stand before you, our holy God. Help us to fight for the gospel. If we lose the gospel, we have lost everything. But Lord, we have the gospel. We have everything we need for our only comfort in life and death. For in the gospel, we have Jesus Christ and all his saving merits. What else do we need, our Father? We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.